walking through the story. <clears throat> and if you would like to be a part of this, uh, there are books. We have books back at the Welcome Center, and we invite you to pick one up. It's a book that walks through the, the key uh, primary scripture events chronologically. And we're reading along. You can see where we are. Also, if you're gone for a week, you can go on the church website and pick these messages up by noon on Monday. So we just encourage you. We're going to be going through this between now and the end of August is uh, the time frame that we're going to walk through this story. Uh, We'd like KidVenture to be dismissed at this time. So if you're involved with that, you can go right now. Last Sunday, I mentioned that the average home has four Bibles. 80% of people who have Bibles have never read through it. But there's a lot in the Bible, and it's not always easy to understand what's going on. There's 66 books, uh, 1,089 chapters. If you read through the Bible, you'll read over three-quarters of a million words. So it's a big book. You know, it's kind of like... I don't know how many of you like jigsaw puzzles, <clears throat> but imagine if somebody gives you, uh, they tell you they're going to give you a, a puzzle, it's a thousand piece puzzle, and they hand you the pieces in a baggie because they no longer have the box with the picture. Okay, you know what that's like. You know what it's like when you do a puzzle. You look at the, you look at the box and you look at the picture and you, you identify the lady with the bright red dress and you say, let's start with her. I can find those pieces, right? Isn't that how you do it? It's very tough to put together a puzzle without the big picture. And many times for people, we get little stories in the Bible, but we don't, we don't see the big picture. And so the goal of this time is to give us the big picture. So when you read a story of Gideon or Daniel or Goliath, we know how it fits into the whole story. Let me just quickly review from last week. Last week we saw that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit create this drama, this stage upon which this story is going to take place. It's called creation. That's the backdrop for the story. He then creates the pinnacle of creation in his image, the man and the woman, and brings them together in this garden, and everything is absolutely perfect. They are in fellowship with God, which was one of his intended purposes for making man is his image so he could commune with man. They're in a perfect garden. There's nothing that's... Creation is in harmony. Man is in harmony. There's no fights. There's no tension. The only thing they had was a choice. And they chose, through temptation from the serpent, to disobey and to rebel against God. And on that day and in that moment, everything changed. Everything dramatically changed. It was catastrophic in its scope, and the curse affected man. It affected the relationship between the man and the woman. It affected all of creation. Now we see the first children, and we see of Adam and Eve, and we see murder taking place, and anger, and strife, and sin continues to progress as time goes on, and after several hundred years, God looks down and says his heart was just filled with pain because of the sinfulness of man that he created him 
and we see that God brings judgment. He brings a flood, and he preserves mankind with one family, Noah, his wife, three sons and daughters-in-law. And so that's where we ended up last time. If you were to ask me, so what, what's, what's the main thing we learn in that first chapter? There are two things that I would tell you. We looked at the number. I'll just tell you two things. And this is something to remember through the whole story. Number one, God has a special heart for his people. The man and the woman that he created, God has a special heart for you. And he is pursuing you, and he, he is seeking you, and we will see, as we will see, he will, grow, he will go to great ends to get us back. That's one part of the story. Another thing that's so important to remember is that the consequences of sin were catastrophic, and this week you experienced the consequences of sin in your life, probably in the lives of others around you and death, and destruction, and strife, and tension, and war, and all this is a part of, of the consequence of sin, and what we saw last week was God is not going to soften that, because it's the very pain of sin that, that is going to drive us to the solution. It's going to drive us to God's rescue plan, and so we see these, we see that judgment early on becomes a part of that and we're going to see it again this week that God is going to judge the consequences of sin in our world. So this morning we start and what God is going to do in this, in this story is he's going, to, he's going to start to build a nation. And he's going to work through this nation to bring about an amazing, amazing thing. And we'll see that as we go along. Abraham, actually Abram was his name, and Sarai. Chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis covers a thousand years of unrecorded history. We have a genealogy and the Tower of Babel, but this is, this is like a thousand years uh, in chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis. And so at this time, we don't know for sure, but they estimate probably world population at just under 3 million. That's what... They've kind of looked and tried to estimate approximately 3 million people on the face of the earth spread around. And so onto the stage, as God builds his nation, becomes a very unlikely character. A very unlikely. I mean, if you and I were the director casting for this role of this couple that God is going to begin to build a nation with, I can assure you that Abraham and Sarai would have been sent home, they, they would not, you and I would not have given them the role. I mean, you, you'd be looking for a, probably a young couple that was, uh, you know, that was fertile and, and, and vibrant and able to produce a number of children and a strong family to begin to, to build this family. Someone that had a solid spiritual background. And so who does God choose? He chooses Abraham, whose father was an idol maker. He grew up in a home of idol worship. And then he's 75 years old. There is Sarai, who has, of all things, 
I mean, of all things, she's 65 years old, and she's been barren all her life. She can't have children. These are the people that the director chooses to begin to build a nation. And we go away shaking our heads, but I trust, trust me, it will not be the last time you walk away in this story scratching your head saying, why did God choose that person to fulfill that character in the story? Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, you'll see it up on the screen. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I'll show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So here we, ha- here we have it. God, God's going to build a nation. How does a Jewish race get started? He comes to one man, Abraham. He says, Abraham, you're it. You're the first Jew, and I'm going to build a nation out of your descendants. I want you to get up, leave your home, and I want you to go to a place that you don't know where it is, but I'll lead you there. And Abraham does what God calls him to do. He does what God calls him to do. And so he goes about 500 miles north to Haran, and then he drops down another 400 miles, so it's almost 1,000 miles, and he ends up in this place called the land of Canaan, the land today of Israel. And there he arrives, and we see that famine comes, and you can read that, that story. The famine comes. They have to head on farther south down to Egypt. It's there that Pharaoh uh, <coughs> meets them, and Abraham's wife is ov- evidently a very beautiful woman, and Abraham's afraid that Pharaoh's going to bump him off and take his wife, so he, he asks his wife to tell Pharaoh that, that she's his sister. Pharaoh takes her in, and... As soon as she comes in, things start to go wrong around Pharaoh's palace, and he can't figure out what's going on, finally figures out that he has taken this man's wife and is very upset with Abraham for not telling him and and sends them on their way. They then grow as a family and, and populate, and we come now several, it's about 10 years later, Uh, or excuse me, they grow there. And then, let me just jump in here. Genesis 15, verses 3 to 6, a very important moment. Genesis 15. This is the promise that he gives him. And... He says, Abraham said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then the, Lord, the, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, 
so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. So here's the promise. Abraham, this is going to happen through, this is going to happen between you and Sarah. And you're going to have a child, and you're going to have so many kids, it's going to be like the stars in the sky. So 10 years go by. That's a long time. Especially when now you're 86 years old, and your wife is 75, and you've never been able to have children, and now time is working against you. And so Sarai figured that God needed some help. And so she comes to Abraham. She says, Abraham, I, I think you need to take my maidservant, Hagar. And, and the only way, if, we're gonna, if this is going to happen, you're going to have to have a child through her. And so that's what happens. And Hagar has a child, has a son. His name is Ishmael. And the, the drama begins to unfold. And all you ladies can pretty much imagine this. Jealousy, anger, hurt, favoritism. It was a nightmare of tension for Abraham and Sarai and Hagar. And so this goes on in the story. And more time goes by. Another 13 years goes by. Abraham is now 99 years of age. And God comes and he's now ready. 25 years of waiting, he's now ready to do what he said he would do 25 years ago. He is ready to fulfill his covenant promise. And he came to Abraham, he said, you know that thing you did with uh, Hagar and Ishmael? That didn't count. That was a work of your flesh. Now that was you doing that. Now you're going to see a work of my spirit. When Sarai heard it, she laughed. And God said there, Sarai, why did you laugh? She said, oh, I did And she lied. She said, I didn't laugh. I think it's interesting that God said, well, you're going to have a son. His name's going to be Isaac. And you know what Isaac means? Laughter. Laughter. So beyond all odds... Uh, the miraculous happened. Sarah's in her 90s. Abraham's in 100. Never been able to have children. And God fulfills his promise. And he changes Abram's name to Abraham from father of many to father of multitudes and changes Sarai's name from princess to queen. And their names at that point are changed. Well, with Isaac on the scene... Now the tensions increase. Because now we have Hagar and Ishmael, and we have Sarah and Isaac living in the same household. And you can imagine the tensions that are going on. And so the time comes in the story when Hagar and Ishmael are, Abraham has to choose which son it's going to be that's going to be the son of blessing and Ishmael and Hagar are sent off into the wilderness. They're given a promise. It's a twofold promise. One part of the promise is positive, and part of the promise is negative. The positive part was that Ishmael would grow into a great nation, a large nation. 
The negative part of the problem was, uh, promise was that there would be a, a continual tension between Ishmael's descendants and Israel's descendants. Ishmael's descendants are the Arab nations. Isaac's descendants is Israel and the Jewish nation. And I don't need to convince any of us today or remind you that we are still in the story. And that story is still playing out in the pages of, of your newspaper and on Yahoo headlines day in and day out. We are continuing to watch this story unfold. Well, Abraham had been asked to take a lot by faith. But the greatest challenge of his life was, was probably yet to come. And one day when, when Isaac was probably a teen, probably about 13 years old, 12, 13 years old right in there, God comes to Abraham and he says these words in, in Genesis 22. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. You know, the Bible tells us these, these things and then they, it just kind of moves on. And if, if we're not careful, we, we forget how much emotion is involved in these different stories. I mean, we, we've covered a lot of, I've quickly covered a lot of things here, but I mean, just imagine the, the emotion of Sarah being barren all her life. Do you know that in that day, if you were barren and couldn't have children, everyone looked at you as if God was punishing you for something that you had or hadn't done in your life. Women who couldn't have children were, were a disgrace. And so, just imagine the emotions of Sarah. Imagine the emotions of being 100 years old and 90 years old and having this child. Can you, can you imagine the, the ecstatic joy of Abraham and Sarah when they had this son, Isaac, beyond their, their wildest dreams? And what was it like for Abraham to send his to Ishmael, his, his son born through Hagar. What was it like for him to send them out into the wilderness? That had to have been a, an incredibly difficult moment in his life. And so now here we see Abraham has waited 100 years for this miracle to happen. And now God's telling him to go and sacrifice his son on a mountain that he will show him. Well, it says that he got up early. I, I, I'll bet he got up early because he didn't sleep that night. And he went with his son to this place. I, I want to just show, I'm going to show you a clip this morning. And I, I, I do this just to show you, this is just one, one piece of this story this morning. Hopefully it'll just help you feel a little bit more of, of what this might have somehow uh, been like.
to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. It then says, by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So Abraham evidently reasoned what when he took his son up there, he, he reasoned that if he slew his son, that God could actually raise him from the dead. And he believed that both would return. Well, the story continues. And this morning, we don't have time to, to go through all the story. We see that Sarah dies. Isaac eventually takes a wife, Rebecca. It would be barren for 20 years, and then would come the twins, Jacob and Esau. Eventually, we see that Jacob would also go on then to, to find a wife, Rachel. And they would bear 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And God is continuing, as he promised, to build a nation through whom he is going to reveal himself and reveal a plan to bring man back from the consequences of the curse and the fall and sin. Well, let me just give you a few things to think about in terms of how this applies. As I mentioned last week, there are three stories going on. There's a lower story, which we've just been talking about. Abraham going up. Being told to sacrifice is on the entirely lower story. But there's an upper story. There's something bigger going on. There's something that God is doing through all of these events, just like God is doing something through all of the events in your life. We can get so caught up in the lower story that we forget the upper story and, and fail to see that God is doing something much bigger than what we see in the lower story. And of course, there's our story. Each of us has a story, and we are part of the cast of the story that God is writing. Here's just a few things to think about. Number one, one of the things that strikes us here in the Empress is God's choice of people. God's choice of people. It's crazy. God, God picks people for roles, and it just doesn't make sense. It's like he picks, the, it's not the logical pick for these roles. It's almost like he picks people who could never accomplish what he's asking them to do, and, and then he comes alongside them and enables them to do what they could never do on their own. He, is, he often gives incapable people impossible tasks, and then somehow pulls it off. I mean, we're going to see this scenario crop up time and time and time. This is going to repeat itself over and over and over, all the way through the story. We'll get to the New Testament, and God's going to pick somebody to build the church of Jesus Christ. Who does he pick? 
He picks a guy that is destroying it. His name was Saul. He was the most intent man on the, on the entire planet. He was, he was a man with the greatest intensity to destroy the church. That's the one that God picks to build the New Testament church. We see he picks here a couple who couldn't get pregnant if their life depended upon it, and then miraculously brings about that birth. And you know what happens? Glory goes to who? It goes to God. And one thing I didn't, we didn't talk about last week a lot, but the servant that came in the garden, and Ezekiel and Isaiah tells us how this servant fell. It says that he was the most glorious of all the created creatures. Lucifer, he, he was the most glorious of all the spirit beings. And he came to a point where his sin was not that he got drunk every Friday night, not that he cheated on his wife, not that he uh, did 101 things. You know what his sin was? He wanted glory for himself. He didn't want his life to be about pointing to the glory of God. He wanted people to look at him. He wanted the glory to be about him. And that was the sin. You know, man is the pinnacle of all creation. Man is glorious. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made in the image of God. We are glorious beings. But there is a position of glory that only belongs to God. And when we start living our lives for our glory, that is, that is the foundational sin of all of mankind. I don't care how good your life looks. I don't care how much you do uh, for other people, if you're living your life for your own glory and not for the glory of God, then we're on a dangerous, dangerous road. This story that we're reading, this story is God's story, and it's about His glory. It's not about ours. And so you may be called to play a role that you didn't understand, but it will help you understand if you realize that, ask yourself the question, how is what God is bringing into my life, how might that be used for his glory? We see this in the people God picks. Uh, another thing we see is God's desire for faith. You know, God, just something about faith. God wants us to trust him. You see that over and over and over again. And the story is going to be continually, continually putting people in places where they have to trust God. Over and over again, the waves are going to be too big. The crowd's going to be too big. The giant's going to be too big. The enemy's going to be too big. And the boat is going to be too small. And the lunch with five loaves and fishes is going to be too little. And the stones in the slingshot are going to look so small. And the armies are going to be way too small. If you're in the story, which you are, You'll find yourself in scenes that require great faith, something in front of you that's too big, and what you have looks too small. And God is seeking to do a work in those situations. Here's the last one. We see God's foreshadowing. Something's, something's coming in this story, and through all these Old Testament chapters, there's going to be continual foreshadowing 
It's a shadow. It's not reality, but it's a shadow of something to come. We see an amazing one here in the story today. We looked last week, we saw the sacrifice of animals to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. That's a foreshadow of something that's to come. We saw a boat that's used to rescue Adam and his family. That's a foreshadow of of something that's going to come. And now this morning, I ask you, does this sound familiar to something that's going to happen in the future? The miraculous birth of a child that could only be explained by the work of God in a womb. To Sarah, you shall call his name, does that ring a bell? You shall call his name to Abraham. This is your son whom you love. There was another son who heard these words. This is my son whom I love. Called to travel 50 miles to make this sacrifice. 50 miles from home on Mount Moriah. Why is that significant? Well, it's very significant. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So what do we see? We see that Jerusalem was built on Mount Moriah on the very place, right outside the walls, on the same mount, the very place where another son would carry his own wood on his own back to a place of sacrifice an only son, a deeply loved son, only this time there would be no lamb in the thicket. This time he would be that lamb. It, it is an amazing, amazing story. Father, this morning we, we just see that you are writing this story and we're just in the second chapter and we already we are already beginning to see hints and foreshadows of an amazing unbelievable thing that you are going to do in sending your own son Father today we, we live centuries down the road in this story We live on the other side of Christ. We live on the other side of the cross. And we get to gather here today and not think about something that's to come, but we get to look back and celebrate something that you have done around this table today. I read this week that the first time the word worship was used in the Bible was the account of Abraham and Isaac. As they were going up that mountain, Isaac looked at his dad and he said, Dad, he said, we've got the wood We've got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? We can't worship without the sacrifice. And we can't worship without the sacrifice. We can't worship just like they knew that <clears throat> without the lamb, they, they could not worship. And <clears throat> as we come together week by week, we only worship through Christ. 
And when the day comes when Christ is no longer central to our worship is, is a day you need to look for a different pastor because this table represents um, the whole basis for who we are, for what God has done, for what God is doing. And, you know, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, I'm going to reveal to you the mystery that God is bringing all things under one head, even Jesus Christ. So what's God doing in this story? He's bringing everything in creation under one head, who is Jesus Christ, who will be praised and worshipped forever and ever and ever. And so as we, as we come to this table, we're reminded again today that it's through the Lamb that we worship. It's through the Lamb that we live. It's through Him that we live and move and have our being. The other thing I want to say today is, I, you know, I talked about a puzzle, and you know, one of the worst things is to get to the end of the puzzle and have a piece missing. It drives all of us crazy to see that one piece missing, doesn't it? You look at the dog, and you look at the cat, and you, know, you wonder where it went. <laughs> but I want to say this morning <clears throat> that God is putting together a story, and there are pieces missing in that story. And you might be one of those pieces today. You may be sitting here, you may know all this stuff about God, but you have never entered into a relationship to God through faith in Christ. And God is, you know, it would be a beautiful thing today if God could put another piece in that puzzle, another piece in the story. And so today as we share around this table, I'm going to invite you. If God reveals to you that you're one of those missing pieces, uh, through his sacrifice, through the work of Christ on the cross, you can be reunited with God, re restored and transformed through the work of his spirit. I invite you through a simple prayer of faith as you sit here today. If that's you today, I invite you to, to receive him. I'm going to ask our men to stand, and uh, we'll share first in the bread, symbol of his body. <clears throat> 